Welcome to the Family Law Now podcast, and I'd like to welcome our viewers on YouTube. Today we're talking about changes to the Divorce Act. This is part 2B, Best Interest of the Child Continued. Welcome, I'm Russell Alexander. I've been practicing law with our team here at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers for over 20 years. We help clients going through separation and divorce and with their family law matters. This is a deep dive into changes to the Divorce Act. It's something relatively new for us. Lots of changes. We've broken this down into five or six podcasts. Um, the series is designed to help clients, parents, lawyers, dispute resolution practitioners, um, and everybody involved in the justice system. The, a lot of what we're talking about today is essentially just cut and paste from the Gov Department of Justice website with the government of Canada. And there's that link to that website. It's gonna be in our show notes. So you can look, at, look for that link and uh, the actual statute and what we're talking about. Just to give you an idea of how deep the changes are and how deep of a dive we're taking into this, the overview of our podcast, our divorce, uh, part one, objectives and new duties. Uh, Jason helped us out with that. That's been released. It's available online. Part two is best interest of the child uh, and parenting and contact orders. Part three will be mobility and jurisdiction. And part four will be support and other considerations. So there's a lot going on with these changes. Uh, this is federal legislation. It applies to the Superior Court sitting in Ontario and across uh, the country. Luckily, we have something called a unified family court in most parts of the provinces of Ontario. If you're dealing with a divorce, um, these provisions will apply. Most provinces are enacting legislation to mirror these provisions. Some of these changes mirror provincial legislation that were already in place. So you wanna be mindful of whether or not you're dealing with a divorce, first of all, and the Divorce Act applies to your particular family situation or clients that you're helping. But I'd like to start off with introducing our guests. Uh, we've got some celebrities returning from podcasts from the past, and we've got uh, a new rising star that I'm really excited is joining with us. Uh, so Nafisa, do you wanna start? Hi everyone. Uh, so I'm the managing associate at Russell Alexander, um, and I've been practicing exclusively in the area of family law for about ten years now. I was called in 2010. Ten years. Where's time going? I know. Getting old. Susanna's our newbie. Welcome, Susanna. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Russ. Um, so my name is Susanna. I joined Russell's firm at the end of. 2019. I've been practicing since 2012 and um, family law is just, it's, it's a very interesting uh, type of law to practice. It's, it's alive and it's, um, we're very pleased to see the changes that have been made to the Divorce Act and we're very excited to talk to you about it today. Thank you for joining us, Susanna. And Jason Eisenberg has been reviewing and highlighting uh, the script for weeks now. He's joining us. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, 
I guess I'm uh, been a lawyer uh, called in 2000, so over 20 years, um, mostly in family law, um, child protection law as well within that area. Um, yeah, family law is never boring. It's always changing. It's evolving. It's a living, breathing entity, as we say in law school. And um, mm -hmm. that's been true over these 20 years of practice. So uh, um, this, this, this change is no different. Uh, there'll be future changes as well um, until we keep getting it better. Or until we get it right. But thank you, Jason. Um, uh, I hope we get it right at some point. But if not, I'll take better along the way. Great. Thanks a lot. All right. So let's get into this. Nafisa, you've got our first few sections. Uh, let's make a start. All right. So uh, the first section is section 16.4a, and it's uh, regarding the nature, seriousness, and frequency um, of the family violence. So this is an important um, section. Uh, it, by investigating these different types of um, things, like the nature and the seriousness of frequency, um, the court can begin to sort of understand um, if there is a pattern of control. With family violence, um, it's important to, to kind of look at the underpinnings and, and really see, you know, what is the type of violence that we're talking about here? Um, is it a type of violence that is associated with a higher risk, um, for example, sexual violence? Um, we also want to look at the frequency and severity of violence, um, because these are all indicators of uh, risk to future violence, which is very important for a court to decipher. Um, the risk of harm to uh, children from exposure of the spousal violence um, also increases with the duration and frequency of the violence. So these are all really important indicators for the court to look at. Um, and so this is a really important section and it is an important addition um, to the legislation, which um, had nothing of this sort um, in, the previous, um, in the previous Divorce Act. So it's good to see the, that, these, um, that these changes have been made. Um, so, I mean, it's a good start. Um, yeah. Jason, what do you think? I agree with Nafisa. I, I mean, you know, we hear this a lot in practice um, that someone is doing something where they're um, using the children um, against you, um, controlling the time uh, with the spouse, making threats. Um, you know, we communicate that as best as we can within a, um, a matter if it's in litigation. Um, but you know you don't always necessarily get specific attention given to that. So if you're able to say to a judge, you're supposed to consider this. You're supposed to look at this. You're supposed to say, um, this is this is something that's now been identified that I should be considering. I think they'll take that to heart a little better. Um, what effect it will have, I guess we'll have to see. But um, you know, people have these stories. Um, you might verify they're true as best as you can. But I think that this is. Um, listening to what's going on in, uh, in, in families as the relationships break down and what happens with respect to um, how there are imbalances in the relationship. And this is identifying that, recognizing that and saying we need to be a little more uh, cognizant of that when we're, we're dealing with what's best for the children. Yeah, I think frequency is a really key word. There's a pattern that it may exist. And unfortunately, violence um, isn't like a tap that you can turn off. Unless, and we'll see this with some of the other changes we're going to be discussing, unless the, the person is getting uh, help and therapy and there's some evidence that he or she has changed her ways, uh, this could be a real telling factor for the court when assessing best interest. 
in my view. What do you think, Susanna? I think it's really important that the law has taken notice that, you know, this is happening and we want to do everything we can to protect children and protect parties. Um, it's also helpful for the lawyers too, when we're talking to our clients to talk to them about violence and go through many different um, examples of how violence can occur because I found in my own practice that some parties, especially women, they're so used to the violence that it doesn't face them anymore. And they don't see it the same way we do. And so if we are also able to talk to them about some of the changes that have come down in the legislation, then we can better assess their situation. We can even refer them to agencies that can help and we can better draft our own pleadings to tell the judge, hey, you know, this is something you really need to pay attention to here. Yeah, and courts are a lot more alert to that. They, the victim may not see the risk that lies ahead of them down the road. We often see yeah. uh, victims speaking to Crown attorneys asking that charges be withdrawn. And courts yeah. more and more are saying, no, um, we're not gonna permit that to happen. We simply just don't understand the risk uh, because of, um, the history that you've been involved in, but it's really insightful. Thank you, Susanna. Uh, Nafisa, you got our uh, next section? Yeah, I just wanted to add that it also, I mean, uh, just back on the previous section, um, it, it kind of allows us to look at sort of the stages of, of a certain uh, uh, violence, right? So when we're looking, for example, you know, if, if it's a serious incident um, that occurred, um, which has a, a, you know, in it an overall pattern of coercion and control, that's a greater concern than, a, you know, one single less serious incident that occurred, you know, right at the time of separation. So I think it's really important to, to highlight those distinctions. And I think this section allows us to do that. So I just wanted to highlight that as well. Um, so the next section is 16.4 sub B, and that's the pattern of coercive and controlling behavior. So in this section, it's whether there is a pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in relation to a family member. Um, so this, again, um, is very important to, to kind of understand, okay, if it's coercive and controlling uh, family violence, it depicts a really a pattern of behavior here that is aimed really at controlling the victim, dominating another person. So very serious types of um, abuse happening here. Um, a controlling partner often tries uh, to use children uh, to control their former spouse. So there's deep rooted sort of beliefs there. Um, and uh, with this, you know, co coercive and controlling type of behavior, there's also evidence that perpetrators um, of this particular type of violence, they're more likely the ones that commit um, situational uh, uh, couple violence to continue, like they continue the family violence in the future. So um, this is, it's important if a court is assessing the violence, you know, it's past violence, but is this um, a person that's going to be violent in the future that I need to sort of order or put in measures to protect the victim as well as the children. So those are, you know, sort of um, further uh, indicators that a court could look to, to see what type of violence it is and then make, um, appropriate orders based on that type of evidence. Um, there's also evidence that perpetrators of this type of, of uh, violence 
they're unable to separate their role as a spouse from their role as a parent. And therefore, they're more likely to abuse their children after divorce. So this indication, like um, if there's evidence of, of this type of behavior, um, then the ramifications are a lot deeper. And I think that, that um, the court um, equipped with this type of information can really protect victims. Susanna, thoughts on this new section? Yeah, this uh, builds upon what I was saying earlier. I've, I've found that when I'm talking to clients, um, threats and course of behavior is, you know, there are the areas where clients are very hesitant to share information with, with the lawyer. And part of that is because they themselves are afraid or um, just having to relive that, to talk to a lawyer about it, to put it in front of a judge is, is an emotionally draining process for them. So I think as lawyers too, we need to be aware that it's in the legislation. We, we need to talk to our clients about it, but we also need to give our clients time to process the past, process what has happened to them, and then come back to us so that we can properly say to a judge, look, this is, this is what is happening. This is what is likely to happen in the future. This is what, um, this is, what is going on now. This is how the child is maybe reacting to what the child um, has witnessed. Because if, if we properly put this evidence in front of a judge, we, we, may we may be able to use it to justify, for example, the orders we're seeking. Maybe we're seeking mm -hmm. contact order. Maybe we're seeking supervised uh, parenting time. And so it's important that we, we give our clients the emotional space to talk to us about what the family matrix and the family situation has been like for the last couple of years. And if there's a parenting assessment, these are factors the assessors will need to consider as well. Great tips. Uh, Jason? Yeah, um, what we often hear, um, we see in cases uh, where there is uh, violence between partners um, and then a child is part of that relationship as well that um, the court's supposed to consider violence. That was already part of all of this. But um, when you look at it and say, um, I think whatever violent was, violence was committed against me as a parent, as a partner, um, sometimes there's there's allegations or, or um, you know, in our, in our way as lawyers, where we're, we're not really social workers or psychologists say, if a parent doesn't want the other parent to have time with the child, they're projecting that on them. They're saying, your, your abuse of me makes me feel like you will be abusive to our child. I want to limit the time. I want to limit the exposure. I want to supervise. I, I, I want to make all the decisions about parenting as well, even. Um, this, is, this is different. This is saying that we're, we're recognizing that and we're trying to figure out um, what patterns, what, what, what elements of that violence could lead to us having to do things differently with the child. What could lead to us saying, um, you know, the, the, the time needs to be limited or, or we need to consider other elements, um, you know, in deciding what is in the best interest of a child, um, which is the, you know, the legal test we're dealing with. And so, um, you know, before you would just get that request of a client to say, I think that this bad relationship with my former partner um, is going to affect their parenting. They're going to use our child against me. They're going to uh, harm the child potentially. And, and, 
I think there was always consideration giving to that, but here is a way of saying, you know, you need to look for it. We need to, we've got a roadmap. As you say, Russ, we could have a, an assessor looking at these questions and answering them and saying, what could I recommend for this family for the court to do um, with respect to these elements of the relationship? Um, so it, it's, it's the specific direction that I think um, will be helpful because um, these things always hovered around, but they were never really there. Now we have the tools. That's, that's beneficial, I think, for everybody. Yeah, um, just to pick up on a couple of points, and I'm sure you've experienced this, Jason, as former CS counsel, and I used to defend CS cases, but once this pattern is established, unfortunately, you see it through the children and family members from generation to generation in terms of abuse or violence. Was that your experience, Jason, as uh, counsel? Uh, I, I think that... Um... In some relationships, the children do become, um, you know, fodder for this type of thing. And I think that you do find that um, uh, people um, want to hurt each other and that's a way to hurt each other. Um, you know, the, it's our next part here that we're gonna be dealing with, but you know, I think there's also the idea that some people have described um, abuse in front of a child as being child abuse. It doesn't have to be, um, abusing the child physically it could be the child witnessing abuse of any kind and, and that's been described as experts as child abuse in and of itself you don't put your hands on the child so i think um, um the takeaway from a child is is significant as well so i say i don't want to get ahead of ourselves that's our next part but um, i was just going to say jason you're leading me right into the next section it's uh, very, it's very before seamless. we move on i do want to flesh out that there's other forms of abuse that are discussed in the commentary to this section, such as choosing a, a partner's clothing, controlling their money. We've all seen relationships where, you know, one felt put on a budget or is not allowed to access money for their own use. We're preventing uh, a spouse from working or even seeing certain friends. Um, so this is a real problem and I'm glad that we have this section. Sorry, back to you, Nafisa. <laughs> I was going to say, you're leading me to the next section, which is enumerated ground 16.4c, which says whether the family violence is directed towards the child or whether the child is directly or indirectly exposed to the family violence. So that's, Jason, what you were alluding to, um, where there's actually re research that shows that children who are exposed to family violence often suffer serious ramifications. Um, they suffer from emotional, social, cognitive, behavioral problems. Uh, the stress and anxiety that's associated with exposure to family violence can um, have uh, quite negative effects on their brain and lifelong, and also very, um, a lifelong impact. So the exposure itself to violence is, is also very important, even though the perpetrator is not physically, um, you know, assaulting the child or there's no, um, uh, you know, a, a, physical uh, violence there, there's ex the exposure itself is violence. Um, and, and this violence can have intergenerational consequences um, and also gendered consequences. So Russ, this is what you were alluding to um, uh, with Jason. So we have examples uh, in, in the commentary here where it, so it says that boys who witness intimate partner violence are more likely to be violent against their partners as adults. So there, there's also, you know, sort of research that can 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 prove that, Russ, and also with girls um, who have witnessed intimate partner violence 
um, from their parents are more likely to be abused by their partners as adults. So there's some sort of interni internalization of, of the behaviors. Um, and so it, it's important to see that it's, it's not just, you know, is the, ch is, is the perpetrator abusing the child, but has the child been exposed to family violence? Um, so uh, I think that that's a really important distinction and an important factor to consider. Right. Yeah, it's very important. Susanna, what do you think? Um, while, you know, this section may be new, it's been my experience that judges really take these issues very seriously. And I know that they do receive special training to deal with um, or understand how children experience domestic violence, whether they've been subjected to it or they witness it. Um, and in my experience too, it's not just the children who develop all of these issues. Sometimes the abusers even have these issues, cognitive issues, behavioral issues. And um, in really serious cases where I've seen it play out, where a dad has been unable to control himself inside of the courtroom, a judge says something to him that he doesn't like. And, you know, I, I've seen situations where judges have had to summon police officers inside the courtroom to deal with these types of behaviors. So I just want people to understand that, you know, even though it's new, judges have, um, they've taken these things seriously and I have no doubt that they will continue to do so. Yeah, I think all these changes, judges would, are already considering these factors, but it's good having yeah. them listed and having lawyers turn their minds to these sections when they're having their discussions with clients. Um, that's a great point though. And, and you know, Susanna, in the courtroom, you would expect clients to be on their very best behavior. And for some clients that is their best, right? Having a yes. breakup, that's just who they are. Yes. Um, it, it's shocking. I've seen court security called. I've seen uh, crazy incidences at the courthouse when um, People know there's security, they're being watched. The judges uh, are gonna observe their conduct in the courtroom and it's gonna have a big impact on their case, but they still lose it. Uh, so it tells us how deep this problem really is. Uh, that, that was some great insight though. Thank you, uh, Susanna. Jason? Yeah, I agree with Susanna. I think this has always been hovering around uh, these uh, issues already. Um, you know, whenever there's violence, I've had judges say, well, did the child witness it? Um, because, you know, if you have a, um, a situation where um, the violence has been documented, it's, it's not even in dispute. Um, if the child didn't witness it, and then you say to the child, you can't have contact with this parent because of what happened, um, that's confusing to them. They don't understand that, uh, you know, uh, there was something that happened that they didn't see that prevents them from having contact with someone they love, mm -hmm. they were seeing on a regular basis, could even been a daily basis because this violence could have ended the relationship and you know for a child that's confusing so we have to look through the eyes of a child um, we have to remember that that again like i said it earlier but i'll say it again the legal test is what's in the best interest of a child so if the child knows mom and dad um you know hasn't seen the violence and then suddenly is said you can't see one parent because of it that's confusing so i think the court does already consider this should turn its mind to that and say, what effect has this had on the child? Um, if it's directed towards a child, well, everyone can probably agree that's something that we have to deal with. Um, but if it's you know, indirectly um, affected them, then we have to 
measure that differently. Um, so I think this is already kind of codifying a lot of things we were doing already. Yeah, and this is um, this isn't a binary choice, right? If one of these factors exists, uh, access doesn't stop for both parents. It just means the court's going to put in safeguards. It might be a supervised access center. Uh, might be uh, counseling would be required depending on the nature of the violence. Maybe an extended family member would do the visit. So just because one of these fa factors exists doesn't mean the child's relationship will automatically stop with that parent. It might if there's been a criminal charge and, and uh, the, the parent assaulted the child, the criminal court will likely say there should be no contact. But it's not necessarily binary, but that's a great, uh, great point, Jason. Thank you. Great job, Nafisa. I think, Susanna, you're going to carry the water and uh, take a look at the next few sections we have up today. Yeah, so next we're going to be dealing with sections 16 sub 4D, which talks about the court considering the physical, emotional, and psychological harm or risk of harm to the child due to family violence. So the court has to consider um, what type of harm the child has suffered and how that could impact upon the parenting arrangements and what services we may need to help this child and to help the family as well. And the word risk is used because the harm is not always immediately apparent after the family violence um, has occurred. So this is something I touched upon uh, earlier where I've said, Sometimes we talk to our clients and what is a shock to us is not a shock to them because they've lived it. So, and also for a judge, it may be shocking too. So it's important that we really understand from our clients what has gone on and how most importantly, the child has been impacted. Has, you know, we need to ask important questions like has there been changes to the child's behavior? Um, whether the child is maybe not wanting to see a particular parent or a particular family member. How's the child doing in school? How's the child doing overall? Um, these are things we, we need to consider now and, and just go through a range of, of different things a child may experience so that we can properly put that information in front of a judge and, and maybe figure out with our clients, do some brainstorming to figure out how can we help this child and what even we could recommend um, to a court to alleviate risk to a child, risk of harm, but not just to the child, but to the, the client that we are representing who may be the subject of the abuse as well as the child. Yeah, you know, risk I think has a certain legal connotation to it. Um, there may be emotional or psychological harm directed between the spouses in the home, uh, but the child hasn't been exposed to it. Uh, I think the fact that there's risk the child might be exposed to it uh, is an important factor to consider. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that the abuse doesn't necessarily pose a risk. So I think it probably lowers the evidentiary burden on this particular element. Uh, rather than a judge saying, well, you don't have any direct proof that occurred in front of the child. It's not necessary. If the child is upstairs sleeping, the child might wake up and walk into a fight between uh, two parents. So 
really, I think it's a, an important distinction. What do you think about this section, Jason? Yeah, I agree with you. Like the risk part is what's important here. I mean, when you look at it, just it's a pretty simple line. It's just one line, but um, you're talking about different types of harm, you know, because children may witness something um, and uh, it has an emotional effect on them, has a psychological effect on them. They may be physically abused and it has a physical um, effect on them. So you identify all those things, but also the risk. Um, I agree. Like you don't know everything about what will happen um, with a child once they witness violence. Um, we talked about, Matafisa earlier talked about children that uh, witness it maybe that way with their own partners or, or, or accept the violence as being the norm with the future partner. So it's those sort of things we don't know yet. We don't know if counseling will be needed to make sure that the child recognizes that's not a healthy relationship. It's not how you interact with your partner. Um, and uh, that you uh, uh, long-term can have those uh, negative effects. So um, it's kind of recognizing a bunch of different things. Um, and uh, I keep repeating myself, but these are things we did, we are mindful of before, but still it's good to codify them, make sure that everyone's drawing their attention to them and saying in the bigger picture, um, you know, what is this uh, effect on a child and um, how can we manage that better so that um, this doesn't become a long-term problem. I agree. Afisa? For me, I think it's really uh, what, what I'm taking away from this um, uh, through experiences, you know, really that component for the need of uh, the need for services component of this, this section. So, um, you know, putting the children in counseling is viewed as a major decision um, that neither parent can really make without the other part uh, parent's consent. So I think that it's important that um, the, in these types of cases, um, maybe uh, to secure an interim order that allows one parent to make that decision, because I find that, you know, with, with the cases that I've dealt with where there has been, um, you know, serious control and abuse, um, it's been very difficult to get the help that the children need because the perpetrator of abuse is refusing uh, to consent to a counseling order. Um, and the children then don't get the much needed help uh, to sort of deal with the, the, the aspects of that abuse. So I think that that, you know, having that right in the legislation, I think will be helpful. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's very important um, that if the children do need counseling, that uh, the parent that can make that decision um, is, been, uh, is being given that authority to do so to get them the help that they need. That's great insight. And I think a judge is certainly gonna err on the side of consent uh, of, um safety and, and the order uh, that, that occur where the court might have required a contested motion and you know a few thousand dollars in legal fees and some delay. Uh, so I agree with that. It's a great insight. All right, uh, Susanna, next section. All right, under section 16 sub 4e, the court is required to consider any compromise to the safety of a child or other family member. The court in this section is recognizing that when there's an increase in the likelihood of future family violence, then the risk to the safety of the child increases. And the court has to consider whether not only the child, but another family member is going to be a direct victim of family violence and whether the child is likely to be exposed to that violence. Um, and this consideration is also separate from the court's assessment of someone's fear for their own safety. The court is also recognizing that risk and fear are not the same. So when I used to do the MIP uh, 
lawyer presentation in Oshawa, I would often say to the attendees, family court judges don't know what's happening in criminal court. And I think the, the uh, prior changes to the Divorce Act um, reflects that as well. So it's up to you to let the court know that maybe there are bail conditions, maybe um, this is not the first time that your ex has been charged. And this also ties in nicely to the course of behavior of a pattern of violence. These are things, this is where, you know, one of the mandatory forms in family law, when you're dealing with children comes in, that, that affidavit in support of Cassian Access, where you tell the court all about what has happened and you let the court know as well, not only what has happened to the child, but what has happened to you and, and explain to the court, you know, whether you think your child is fearful and why is your child fearful and not only your child, but to you as well. And if you sufficiently trace the pattern of coercion, then a court can also evaluate for themselves what the what the future risk is like, or what or whether you have sufficient grounds to fear for your safety and that of the child in the other person's care. Uh, Russ, what do you think about this section? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We covered um, the previous sections you mentioned off in our last podcast, where the the legislation now directs judges to consider what's happening in other courts. People who are not familiar with the court system may not understand when you go to family court, usually you have a specialized judge in a different courtroom in a different part of the building. If you go to criminal court, say perhaps charged with domestic assault or family violence, you have a different judge, um, probably a provincial court judge, not one appointed to the superior court. So you'll be uh, notionally in a different court system. You'll be in the court of justice as opposed to the superior court of justice. Uh, it's not likely those judges would be communicating on a regular basis, um, but now the legislation is directing courts to consider what's happening in other, uh, other, uh, other courtrooms. And you, you're exactly right. There could be family violence or spousal violence with respect to a prior relationship that uh, the current victim might not know about. That's certainly important information uh, for the current court to consider in terms of its asking risk, compromise to safety and these other mm -hmm. items that we're talking about. So I agree uh, completely, uh, Susanna, that was um, a good analysis. How about you, Nafisa? Um, I think this is, in, in this uh, section, I think it'll be interesting to see how the court deals with, you know, the violence against other family members. So that brings in another sort of um, complexity to this uh, analysis, you know, um, in elder abuse, for example, if the family is living yeah. with, you know, grandparents and, and that the abuse um, trickling through to other members of that family, I think it'll be very interesting. Um, I don't know if there's a, you know, a lot of case law on this. I think it's, it's relatively new to have that um, component added to legislation. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, just on that point and how family members uh, decided, we know when couples repartner, sometimes the, the new partner or the spouse and the new partner, uh, you know, have a dispute, right? Publicly, either at the end of the driveway or at a family mm -hmm. event. And I think that would probably be captured by this section as well. 
uh, and uh, it goes back to this idea of a pattern of conduct or a risk of harm that uh, the legislation is talking about. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I think in the same vein of what you're talking about, Nafisa was saying, um, you know, this isn't, I think what this section is doing is having a judge being able to say, you know, you may not feel that there is a compromise uh, to um, uh, your, your safety um, or, or, or a family member, but I do, and, and I'm recognizing it. What you're telling me is giving me the authority to intervene, um, consider it, weigh it, measure it, and the seriousness of it, whether you think it's there or not. Right. And um, that's important because you do have abuse partners that don't recognize that. They repartner with someone new. That pattern continues. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand that that's an abusive relationship again. Um, and the other side isn't saying anything about it because it's helping them. But a judge may say, I'm recognizing this as a problem. You may have that with family, other family members as well. So it's, it's giving the judge the ability, as they should have. I mean, you know, we, we do have situations where the court says, I'm kind of the, the parent here and I'm taking over. And uh, this, this gives them the authority to do that and recognizing that even if the, 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 the parent in question or, or whoever we're dealing with doesn't recognize it, uh, the judge is. I'm recognizing it. it's important. I'm taking notes and I'm making decisions based on that, whether you tell me or not. Yeah. And that's based usually on years of experience and seeing other families with similar fact scenarios come before the court. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes resulting in um, more violence or even death. Uh, really important point, Jason. Thank you. All right. I think you have uh, another section for us here, Susanna. Yeah, so sections uh, 16.4F also builds on that and talks about whether family violence causes the child or another family member to fear for their own safety or for that of another person. So the law isn't just looking at the family that's present in the courtroom. The, the judge is taking, uh, casting a wider net, a bigger perspective as to what is going on, what has gone on, who else do we need to be concerned about, what, uh, what measures can we put in place to protect the victims, especially the children. The court is also mindful that, as we've been saying all along, um, a victim's lack of fear does not necessarily predict that violence will not reoccur. And you know, to build on what Jason said earlier as well, um, judges sometimes recognize it a lot uh, quicker. They, they pay greater attention to it than we do. And I've had situations where judges even recommended that the victim of the violence attend counseling that is geared specifically towards their situation because they are, they are taking a holistic perspective. And at the end of the day, they're trying to do everything they possibly can to um, not necessarily preserve the family unit, but preserve the, the mental and emotional well-being of, of everyone in the courtroom, all the individuals who may be subjected to this type of, of um, violence. What do you think, Russ? Um, I agree. This is uh, another really important section, uh, long overdue. I'm surprised, and I surprised the first podcast we did, how many, how many of these sections weren't already part of the Divorce Act. Uh, I suppose a lot of it was covered by provincial legislation, but, and we had a, 
you know, lots of judicial discretion, but as Jason's indicating, we're probably just codifying uh, the practice of most superior court judges. Um, what do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I, you read my mind because what I was going to say is, is that this isn't, you know, a lot of these sections aren't um, adding or replacing or changing, sorry, sorry, aren't replacing or changing an existing section. They're adding it completely. Like it wasn't even in the, um, uh, the purview of the court before. Um, so um, good to have these things. I, I think that, you know, again, this also, you know, it gives the court consideration to, to look at something maybe that um, um, they feel is important, but, uh, but I think also, lends, unlike the last example, um, uh, section, uh, subsection E, where this goes into is actually if you fear for your own safety. So like if you're worried about your own safety, the court has the ability to consider that and look at that. And, and uh, you know, there, there, there may be cases where even if um, there's not present uh, risk or, 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 or reason to feel that there's going to be violence committed, that um, a court should still consider that there's real fear. Um, the person is like, I think something's going to happen. You have to measure that. You have to consider that. Um, that could affect um, all sorts of things. In fact, not only the parenting time, but could affect who makes decisions about the child and, and whether that's something that should be done jointly or not. Um, because if you, if you fear your own safety of the other person, maybe those people should not be speaking too much uh, together anymore. I agree. And I think the language is much stronger than that. It's not should consider, must consider. Uh, the court cannot ignore uh, these factors if somebody brings it to the court's attention. It's mandatory the court considers uh, these various aspects uh, in, a, in assessing the best interest. So I think that was spot on, Jason. Thank you. Nafisa? Oftentimes, like with these types of cases, I find that it becomes, you know, a he said, she said situation where one person is alleging the, the violence and, and is a victim and the perpetrator is saying that, you know, it's all made up. Um, but I think this section really speaks to, you know, the child's fear. Um, and as lawyers, I think we have to be mindful of how we're going to bring that forward uh, for the court's consideration. So what options are there for us to sort of um, uh, bring that forward? You know, is, is it through the Office of the Children's Lawyer where the child um, obtains representation, a voice, um, is it through a section 30 where someone comes in and sort of provides the court with that independent advice because uh, uh, independent report, because again, it's, it's really the child's fear and how does the, how will a judge tap into that, that fear um, with the, you know, the mother saying there is fear, the father saying there is no fear. So I think as lawyers, it's important for us to have the tools in our toolbox to be able to provide the important information so that the courts can make the appropriate decisions. Yeah, and that's gonna, I wonder if that's gonna sort of put the gears on proceedings, right? Is the judge gonna say, I'm not gonna permit any contact until I get some professional input, the voice of the child, or uh, I know judicial interviews were the flavor of the day um, some time ago. A lot of it is gonna be dependent on the age of the child, right? Can mm -hmm. the child articulate fears? Are we talking about an 18 month old infant or a, 12 year old or 13 year old child. Um, and each child is different in terms of their capacity. A uh, 12 year old may be very mature and a 16 or 15 year old may be very mature, but you're exactly right. And I think those things are gonna need to be considered. Thank you so much, uh, Susanna.
If you're enjoying this video and find it helpful, you can give us a thumbs up or leave your comment in the comment box below. My turn to uh, take a look at a few sections. I hope I'm gonna be as articulate as everybody so far. So best interest of the child, we're gonna take a look at 16 sub four sub G, steps to prevent further family violence by the person engaging in family violence. And G specifically says that any steps taken by the person engaging in family violence to prevent further violence from occurring and improve their ability for, to care for and meet the needs of the child. So I think what we're seeing here is if we're counseled to uh, an alleged uh, abuser or if our client has been convicted of these offenses, um, they're gonna need to get some help and the court's gonna consider whether or not they do and what help they're getting. I know back in the day when I used to practice criminal law, the John Howard Society had a program called PARS, uh, where the um, person convicted of the offense or as part of a diversion program through the Crown Attorney's Office would be required to take counseling and prove that he or she successfully completed the counseling. Uh, the commentary talks about hearing dads as an example for fathers. I don't know if there's um, hearing mothers out there. There's probably something uh, similar. Um, and the commentary also notes that participation in th these programs does not guarantee a change in behavior. Mm -hmm. So this sort of goes back to this uh, analogy I use where it's not like a tap that you can turn off and the water's going to stop. Uh, it's not as simple as that. In an assessment of whether a change in behavior has occurred is important. So I think the court's going to be looking for something more than uh, spending a few nights uh, in counseling or at the John Howard Society or in caring dads. You're going to want probably some professional input by a qualified assessor, however that may look, um, clinical social worker or somebody else with qualifications to provide uh, that type of assessment. Depending on the abuse, it might be a psychiatric report or uh, something more in depth. So this sort of um, adds some balance to the legislation in the sense that if somebody's acknowledging their conduct, taking responsibility for the mistakes that they've made, have entered and successfully completed a program, uh, the judge is gonna need to consider that as well in terms of assessing the best interest of the child. Ultimately, it, you know, studies I think show children who have a good relationship with both parents end up being uh, meeting with more success than others that don't. Uh, that's my take. Uh, what do you think, Susanna? I think it's important that if you represent the alleged perpetrator in these cases, that, that we advise our clients to do whatever we can, whatever is within the realm of reasonable to prove to court that you are taking steps to improve your behavior and not just do the program, but also present a certificate of completion to the other party and the other party's lawyer and perhaps file it with the court. Um, that is really, really important for a judge to take into account that you are doing uh, or doing whatever you can to um, prove to the court that you know, you're taking steps to address 
your behavior. And sometimes it's also even helpful to do it without being asked or without there being a court order for you to do it. That that will um, assist the court in trying to come up with a parenting plan for your children and one that protects your children and also one that protects the alleged victim of the abuse. I think that's a long way in the court's eyes. What do you think, Nafisa? If I could um, just jump in before Nafisa does, I hope I don't spill anybody's uh, commentary. <laughs> uh, I agree, Susanna, if, if your client is taking responsibility for his or her conduct and sets out in his or her materials, uh, the event occurred and these the steps are taken to address it, that's gonna buy a lot of credibility with the judge mm -hmm. that you're taking responsibility. But I think we also need to be mindful as counsel if there's outstanding criminal charges to perhaps consult with uh, your client's criminal lawyer um, to make sure that you're not gonna be putting them into any jeopardy with respect to the criminal proceeding. So it's a bit of a balancing act there uh, for mm -hmm. family counsel. Sorry, Nafisa. No, um, that, that's a really good point. And I was actually gonna say the first step is for the perpetrator to actually acknowledge um, that they are the perpetrators of violence. And I think that's a very difficult um, step. Um, many clients who may be perpetrators of violence um, are not there yet. And they're not willing to recognize um, that they are, um, they, they have been abusive or, or they are um, engaged in, you know, behaviors of control and co coercive and controlling behavior. Uh, so the most important part would be sort of to kind of recognize um, um, that. But I also think that, you know, uh, it, it's really important um, that, uh, you know, a perpetrator who is um, taking, you know, a, a program or taking steps or measures uh, to, uh, to, to, to help their situation. It's not really just ticking off a box that, oh, my lawyer recommended I, I take the PARS program. I'm just going to tick off this box and then you're back to that same pattern of, you know, coercive behavior once that certificate is provided. Um, sometimes this violence is really deeply rooted and, and, and there's, yes. you know, there's a lot uh, that needs to be worked on um, and change, um, you know, it can take quite some time. It's not short-lived. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it, it arises from deep-seated beliefs um, and, and that takes some time to tackle and, and really do the, the really heavy-duty work um, in order to really, uh, really change um, those, those patterns of behavior. So I think, you know, um, it's a good start, um, but I think that it, it can easily be abused. Um, uh, so I think there's got to be a lot of caution in the way that um, this, this clause is, is in practice used. Um, to assist perpetrators um, of violence, um, because again, uh, they may just do it, um, tick off the box, and, and you know, once they've achieved their goal, let's say it's shared parenting, they're back to that same behavior, um, and now the court's not involved. So it's, it's that pattern of behavior continues without the, the measures of safety that are supposed to be in place. Great stuff. Jason? Yeah, I mean, when I read this section, it reminds me of my child protection background and working for CES because it's these types of things that were always recommended to parents. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I represent, I worked for the CES, I always rep, also represented parents and still do. And these types of things are always recommended by the society as a way of, um, you know, dealing with these things. They're trying, they're trying to assess risk, they're trying to reduce risk, they're trying to get out of your family's life. And so these things help reduce risk, they help reduce, um, you know, future problems, you hope and you can just uh, move on. And so same thing here. Um, 
you know, what I often say to my clients is judges love a redemption story. So, you know, you can, you, you can be the bad person and then you can redeem yourself. And, you know, that, that helps. It shows you get things done. It shows that when push comes to shove and you've got to do something for yourself, you'll get it done. So maybe you'll get something done for your child too. Child needs the help, you go get it because you got it for yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't get it for yourself. You're not giving the judge a lot of options. What you're letting them see is, is that you're denying a problem. Yeah. And, you know, even if there isn't a problem, further what Nafisa is saying, you, st you still got to do something. Um, you, you, you put yourself in the shoes of a judge for a second and say, there's been a problem identified. Um, you disagree. What do I do with that? Do I just say you're, you're right and everybody else is wrong? Um, I'm not considering every angle then. And so I think this is saying to a judge, okay, like, you know, whatever you were thinking before and whatever you thought you should be doing with families is now something you can do. And so our clients can say, look, you know, it's not admission I did anything wrong, but I am going to fix this problem. I'm going to get something done. More than ticking the box, because as Nafisa said, sometimes we would, you know, people would go to the PARS program, as you say, Russell, um, people would go to caring dads and, you know, they'd show up. They Usually these are group situations. They'd say nothing. They just get the attendance, get the certificate and move on. And then, you know, CS worker will call the person running the thing because we get permission to speak to them and say, how much did parent participate? Not at all. Parent showed up. Parent uh, uh, attendance was perfect. I have no idea if any of it was sinking in or not or going in one or out the other. So, you know, this is a way to redeem yourself. It's a way to show you get things done. Um, you're listening. Counseling's never a bad thing. Impro you know, self-improvement's never a bad thing in family yeah. law. It's not admission you did anything wrong. It's giving a judge an out to say, if I have to worry about this person anymore, I don't have to now. But the risk level just went down. Um, mm -hmm. all, all of the error that the other person was bringing up about you, the, the negative stuff, it's gone now. Find something else to criticize me about now. So, um, you know, these are things that, again, I think we were doing before this was, these changes were made, but, um, you know, our opportunities to redeem yourself and show that you care about self-improvement enough that you probably care about your children too. That could be the extension. It's a chance to be a better parent. Great insight. Yeah. And I, you know, checking off the box, um, if that's all you're doing, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. Like Jason says, somebody may contact the person running the program. They may report that you're disinterested or on your phone uh, doing whatever. And um, that would create an argument that it's had no effect uh, mm -hmm. and in fact um, you're just uh, going through the motions and you're not sincerely taking responsibility for your conduct so great insight Jason thank you um, I've got another section here other relevant factors section 16 4 sub h and I think the purpose of this is just to indicate that the items we talked about today and then our previous podcast is a non-exhaustive list of risks and concerns that are going to inform and affect the best interests of the child. So other, you know, the court's assessment of the impact of family violence on the parenting arrangement, or there could be other factors that are enumerated, which give rise to a risk to the child or could inform the court with respect to some of these other sections. So this is sort of a catch-all to include things that aren't uh, part of the legislation, but you think may be helpful to the court in determining the best interests of the child. 
what do you think of this section, Susanna? Not a lot of substance here, but it's an important section. I think it's very important um, because as we learn, as we grow, as a society, as, as families develop, we may need to add to this. And this gives the judge a, a wide ambit because at the end of the day, what's important is protecting the child and the best interest of the child. And I think this allows us to have room to grow and develop without having to then rush to change the legislation, which as we know, can be a very long, long process. So I appreciate this section being in here. I think it's really important. Nafisa? Thank you. Yeah, I agree with Suzanne. I think it's, you know, uh, for, for, for having a blanket sort of any other, I think is very important in legislation because it allows for flexibility. And I think it's really important to investigate, you know, additional facts or factors that aren't considered. And, and that allows this, this blanket um, sort of provision allows for that. Um, it makes the inquiry very unique to each family and allows, you know, um, lawyers to make various arguments have sort of like a framework, but also be able to um, to use this um, this particular clause for any uh, additional arguments that that need to be made for that particular family. Agreed, Jason. Your view? Yeah, I think um, what's most helpful with this section is um, just adding the other, right? Yeah, um, we never had um, an other um, that the court should consider. So, you know, a presumption could be made. We're lawyers, we like to argue that there is nothing else to consider. You're done. Uh, once you consider whatever else um, you think is important as a judge, um, this makes it very clear that there could be more, there could be other factors. Um, encouraging us to raise them, encouraging the court to use them and look at them and maybe think about them themselves. So, um, you know, th th that, that could, that could um, add to something we would not have had before. So um, uh, that could help things, it could complicate things, but um, definitely gives consideration where before we didn't have that. Yeah, certainly a good safety valve. And um, if your client has concerns, you can be creative in terms of how you communicate that in relation to the best interests of the child. And it codifies the judge's discretion in this area, which I think is always essential. All right, so that completes my section. Jason, you're at bat. All right, so um, next part we're looking at is uh, section 16.5 of the Divorce Act, which deals with past conduct. Um, so the new section says this, um, in determining what is in the best interest of the child, the court shall not take into consideration the past conduct of any person unless the conduct is relevant to the exercise of their parenting time, decision-making responsibility, or contact with the child under a contact order. Uh, what, was, what it replaces is basically the same thing, except they're being a little more specific here. Before, they didn't consider the past conduct um, unless it was relevant to, to the ability of the, that person to act as a parent of a child. So it's giving us a little more breakdown. It's, it's going into parenting time, which is a big change of the uh, Divorce Act. The decision-making responsibility, which is another big change. Contact with the child, contact order is another change. Um, so uh, they should only consider past conduct, past conduct here when it's relevant to those issues. And so you're going to always get people talking about, well, my, my spouse did this or, or did that. Um, this is what they did in the past with me. And, and I think that um, you know, the court needs to be looking at whether these things affect those specific items. You, you tend to 
not be able to see the forest for the trees. Yeah. We're talking about all those things. So um, it's taking what we already had. It's it's breaking it up into more digestible pieces, perhaps, than just saying, well, you know, has to do with the with the you know being a parent to the child and what does that mean? Um, now we've got a little more direction. We've got specific wording and explanations of what that does in the act. And I think that um, it, it you know anytime you're going to have things more digestible, things more easy to interpret, um, that's going to help everyone in the long run. So uh, what do you think, Nafisa? I completely agree, uh, Jason. So the new language, you know, really provides clarity around what type of past conduct we're looking at um, in assessing the best interests of the child. I think it's important for counsel uh, to really tie in that past conduct with the re relevant outline parameters. Um, so we, we have to be mindful in framing our arguments on what impact that past conduct has on a, really a child-focused parameter, you know, such as parenting time, decision-making responsibilities, for example. So it really gives us a little bit more guidance as to how past conduct can be used um, in terms of arguments to be made. Uh, what do you think, Susanna? It's really important, um, not just for the clients to understand, but for the lawyers, because like you said, it's hard to pick apart the trees from the forest sometimes. A lot of times we get clients who give us a lot of information, right? And a lot of it is coming from a place of hurt and anger and bitterness and hostility. For example, they may want to talk a lot about you know, the alleged affairs or something like that. And, and they may really insist that things like that go into a court uh, document because they think it may paint a negative view of the opposing party in the judge's eyes, but it's our job to explain to them, look, this is what the legislation says. And unless it's relevant to the best interests of your child, we need to exclude it. Um, and, you know, if we get flack on that, then we can always refer to the legislation and, and direct our clients and say, this, this is what we are required to do. This is what the legislation says. You need to tell me more about your ex's um, behavior with respect, specifically with respect to the child. And, and let's zoom in on that and, and focus on that so that at the end of the day, we can um, justify the type of orders that we are seeking. So um, this provision is really, really helpful in that respect. What do you think, Russ? Yeah, it's a little more expansive. I could see uh, COVID concerns creeping into uh, the expanded definition if somebody's not following safety protocols or social bubbles or issues involving vaccination. I could see this uh, potentially capturing um, some of the concerns in terms of best interests of the child. So certainly it's helpful to uh, have this section here. Yeah, I mean, I'll summarize is, is again, that this is, um, this change was necessary because this act, the changes to the act in general change the wording we use. Um, custody is replaced with decision-making responsibility and um, access, um, and, you know, replaced with parenting time and just all the time with a child in general. So, um, you know, uh, time with a child and uh, someone who, uh, you know, isn't a family member of contact. Um, so we're, we're taking that new wording and we're amending the section to make it uh, fit in with that. Um, and uh, um, so that's one reason why the change was necessary, probably the primary reason. Um, moving on, um, we also have a change to section 16 sub 6 of the Divorce Act. And what it says is, is that in allocating parenting time, 
the court shall give effect to the principle that a child should have as much time with each spouse as is consistent with the best interests of the child. And of course, this replaces a provision um, that talked about maximum contact. Um, you have to look at, obviously, um, safety concerns. Um, you have to look at uh, you know, the relationship the child has with each parent, um, determine um, what is sufficient time with each parent. Um, it all depends upon each child. Um, what, you know, as far as an individual, um, I tell my clients that whatever you may get um, in your matter, um, whatever may be the decision, whatever you may agree to, could be very different um, than your neighbor, very different than um, your uh, friend, uh, your sister, your brother. Um, these are all fact-driven. They're all, they're all about the individual. So I think that, um, you know, you have to look at um, what is consistent with the best interest of that child specifically. Um, what do you think, Russ? Yeah, I think we talked about a little bit of maximum contact in our previous podcast. It was sort of a, a default for superior court judges to say we're going to step up the access and look at maximum contact to potentially get to 50-50. This change, in my view, puts the brakes on that mindset. You know, um, maximum contact doesn't mean 50-50, or sorry, the new legislation is uh, consistent with the best interests of the child. So that doesn't mean a stepped up access regime or maximum contact. It might, but it's not necessarily the default. So I think it was uh, a good change. It was um, the maximum contact principle previously applied sometimes resulted in change that wasn't necessarily in the child's best interest might have been in the parent's interest seeking the, the maximum contact. Maybe they're doing it for other or improper purposes, such as to reduce their child support obligation if they can meet the 40% threshold. Um, I might be reading too much into this change, but I think it's, it's child focused and uh, that's a good thing. And what about you, Nafisa? Uh, so I think that for, for this cause, the shift in the language is quite telling, right? We're going away from a maximum contact to as much time with each spouse as is consistent with the child's best interest. So it's subtle, but it's important. Um, it's a shift in the focus of this, right? Um, we're not looking at maximum time, but we're looking at optimal time um, and that for that particular child. So it's very particular to this family, to this child. Um, and so it makes the inquiry a, a lot more case-by-case uh, -case analysis versus, you know, all cases need to work, strive towards maximum contact. I think this, this clause really does um, provide us with, um, with what we need to make those arguments that maximum contact may not be in the best interest of the child. Um, and the more time that this person, for example, is spending with the child, um, it, it's actually adversely affecting the child. And this allows us to make those types of arguments because there are those types of situations where, um, you know, you don't want maximum contact, um, you know, and, and so I think the shift in the language is important to that. And I think that it, it, it's needed and, and I welcome it. Just on that note, I'm not sure, but I thought one of the earlier changes contemplated was a default shared parenting regime. And uh, that got hotly debated as to whether or not that should be the starting point. A lot of custody battles result out of, you know, one parent saying there's a status quo and then a disagreement as to what the status quo means. So 
one of the changes yeah. they were talking about, well, let's call it a default 50-50 regime and then go from there. So this is what they came up with. So I think it's kind of interesting to look at the debate that preceded this legislation. And I think, uh, Russ, for this particular section, this key analysis of family violence, I think it's important that, you know, if you start with a, a proposition that it starts at 50-50, um, it makes it very difficult for a victim of, of violence to really, um, you know, um, move away from that um, um, if necessary, you know, um, in terms of, of being able to co-parent with their perpetrators. How about you, Susanna? I agree. Um, I think we really need to look at how much time a child spends with a parent. I mean, there are some cases where clients who feel that seeing a child every other weekend and, and once midweek overnight is just uh, too little. I think we need to dig deeper with our clients and figure out what it is they want and do that analysis with them beforehand and figure out why they think and why we should argue on their behalf that what they're asking for is in the best interest of the child. Um, that, that would give us a, a, a much better means of, of putting that information in front of a judge and, and saying, hey, let's look at the child's performance in school. Let's, let's look at what this arrangement can offer the child as opposed to the arrangement that the other person wants. And um, I'm glad that the focus too is now with the best interests of the child in mind and, and it takes the focus away from the parents because that's just really important for parents to understand that, you know, at, at this stage, it's not about them. It's about what is best for your child. So that's, that's a welcome change. Yeah, and I think um, further to that, this section is a bit of housekeeping too, because um, best interest of the child, it's mentioned in both the old and the new, but um, the definition changed a little bit. Um, wasn't, it's on in this podcast, but um, sex, section 16 sub three deals with what's the list of what's in the best interest of a child. And that included items where, you know, you need to be cognizant of how good of a relationship as a parent you will promote with the other parent and the child. If you're not yes. gonna do that, then um, that could be a factor in and of itself that judges choose um, as far as what time you will get. Why give you all this time if all you're going to do is use that time or part of that time to hurt the relationship with the other parent. Um, you should be promoting a good relationship with the other parent. And so that's in 16.3. In doing that, then you know what's taken out of this is there was some consideration in the um, former section about willingness of the person to promote good relationship with their parent and facilitate contact with the parent. That was taken out because it's already in best interest section, best interest remained here. So I'm um, looking at that, but that, that didn't go away. It just got put somewhere else and we didn't have to include it here. We had to double dip and, and not double dip, but mention it twice. So it's a bit of housekeeping here, but those things are still important. I think still are relevant, just dealt with somewhere else. Um, the next section uh, to take a look at, six, 16 sub 7, um, and this is the new section. Um, in this section, a parenting order includes an interim parenting order and a variation order in respect of a parenting order, and a contact order includes an interim contact order and a variation order in respect of a contact order. Um, this isn't replacing anything, it's completely new. Um, so what is the change? Um, 
parenting order, contact order, and interim and variation orders. Uh, the reason for this change, um, what's proposed is, is this allows for greater ease of reading, um, avoiding repeated references to every type of order to which the section applies. So um, it's, it's again trying to do some housekeeping, cleaning up with the new wording of what this uh, uh, greater um, amendments to the Divorce Act are. Um, what do you say about that, Susanna? I agree. Um, it does. It does definitely make it easier to read. Um, I mean, it's a substantial piece of legislation. It's quite lengthy, and um, these things definitely help. What do you think, uh, Nafisa? Yeah, I agree. Not much more to say. Uh, just to simplify, provide you know one definition rather than providing different types of definitions. So it's just that you know, it, like like Jason said, I think this is more of a housekeeping just to you know ensure that they're capturing that definition of the other orders in this one word uh, in these two words, like the provisions. So yeah. And anything to add, Russ? Yeah, uh, sort of codifies that you know build clients would view as fighting language of custody and access and sole custody is you know that's not the focus anymore we're looking at best interests of the children uh, as covered off by all these sections in our previous podcast that was a fantastic summary thank you jason the um want to thank our guests today for giving us a few hours of their time um, this is a really important subject so thank them for being here with us Let's get some final comments and uh, thoughts on this new section, um, best interest of the child in relation to the sections we talked about today. Uh, in no particular order, except the order that's on my sheet in front of me, let's talk. start with Jason. Well, I, I think um, like what we've been saying all along is that these things kind of existed in the minds of a judge anyway. Um, you know, whether it was in law or not, I think they were thinking about them. They're trained that way. Yeah. We argue that way. We want them to think about these things. Now um, they have to. Um, and if they're writing a decision, they have to specifically go there and say in their decision, um, according to this section of the Divorce Act, this is what our considerations. So, um, it, you know, it, it, it's just giving um, clarity to things I think are already there and um, just codifying them. So um, that, that's sometimes what, what's necessary and what we need to do. And I say they've updated a lot of wording in that divorce act for what's more common uh, to be used now, uh, more neutral terms. And uh, some of these changes are uh, taking into consideration that, that new uh, branding. Thank you, Susanna. I agree. I think these changes are uh, were, were needed and uh welcomed by everyone in the legal profession, but notwithstanding that, I do agree with Jason that these are things that judges have been thinking about. They were thinking about it and, and we as well as lawyers, um, it's a reminder to us to have an honest and frank discussion with our client and dig deeper in certain areas so that we could properly argue the, our, our client's positions and um, it'll just make us uh, better litigators. I, I do also agree that now when judges are writing decisions, they are required to ensure that in their endorsements and court orders, these sections are taken into account and, and they are mentioned. I've already had clients contacting me and say, hey, you know, we heard about the changes to the legislation. 
how does this affect and impact my case? And um, it's also forcing us to have that conversation with our clients. And um, yeah, I just, I welcome these changes. I hope you refer them to our podcast uh, to learn more. I will now. <laughs> Nafisa? Um, I agree with what Jason and Susanna said. I think that, you know, the family law system was, uh, you know, this was much needed, um, that much needed work in the area of family violence. Um, having represented, you know, victims of violence, I have been disappointed with some of the judgments that have been rendered in, in, in cases on a personal level. You know, I just, um, so, so this is really important um, foundational work. Um, uh, sometimes I find that, you know, perpetrators of abuse, they use the litigation process as a further means of, you know, control and a pattern of, of abuse, and they're using litigation as a tool. Um, so I think that, you know, it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, and I'm really excited to see the impact of this new legislation on uh, the court's responses um, to cases of domestic violence. Um, it's promising, and, and I'm hoping that there will be a shift uh, in the way that these cases are handled. Domestic violence is such an important topic and what's refreshing about these changes is these requirements are mandatory. The language is saying the court must take into account these considerations. So if it's raised by a parent or a victim or a counsel, uh, I think the judge is gonna need to explain in his or her reasons yeah. how they dealt with that section and provide some uh, analysis in terms of the conclusion they make. So I think it's going to make that part of the litigation process much more um, clear to a lot of people in terms of how judges are thinking through these very important issues. Once again, I want to thank the FISA, Jason and Susanna for joining us today. Uh, we have our next podcast coming up on mobility and jurisdiction, some significant changes. Um, that are long, long in the works. And I think they're gonna be fantastic in terms of helping clients understand where the illness is and what they need to do if they wanna move with the child outside the jurisdiction of the court. Once again, I wanna thank our listeners and our viewers today. Please leave your thoughts and comments in the question box below. If you like our video today, please give it a thumbs up just like this or virtually uh, to let us know. You can subscribe to our channel and hit the bell icon to get notification every time we upload a new video. Thank you for listening and watching today. Bye.